In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. You've probably never heard of Helmuth von Molke, but he was a Prussian field marshal and chief of staff of the Prussian army for 30 years. Even though you may not know him, he once said, no plan of operations extends with certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main strength, which has since been modernized into various versions of everyone has a plan until the enemy starts shooting. We don't usually get shot at, but we do make plans and then real life happens. We had scheduled a very important guest for this week, and then, as all too often happens when you're going after high-profile guests, things change and their schedule gets flipped on its head, which means our schedule gets bit right in the hindquarters. We have rescheduled them for next week, and I would love to tell you who it is because we're very excited to have them, but I'm going to hold off announcing it just yet to avoid guest poaching by some other show hosts who are known to do such things, but in holding off, it brings up something else. Have you signed up to get our weekly show announcements? Every Friday, we send out an email announcing that week's show, the guest, and a little bit of teaser to give you an inkling of what we'll be discussing. If you have not signed up for that yet, send an email to info at ispyradio.com, info at ispyradio.com, and just say that you'd like to be added to our email list. And if you miss that or don't have a pen handy, head to today's show page at ispyradio.com, and we'll have a link to it there. Today's show is 14-02. Today's guest is someone that we had planned to talk to later this month, so we managed to swap things around, and fortunately, he was available this week. He's got some updates for us, and in case you missed it, there was an awful lot of things in the news this week, so we'll go through all of that. Today, I would like to welcome Chuck Weiss back to the show. He is a regular guest of ours and a fan favorite. Chuck is a trained scientist, meteorologist, and a clear thinker. He follows politics as closely as anyone in the news media. And uh, today's show actually is going to be one of those where we just talk about a whole range of topics, especially since a lot of things happening line up well with his specialities. Chuck, it is great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Well, good to be back, Mark, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. So let's uh, warm up, so to speak, by talking a little bit about winter weather. A lot of the East Coast and Midwest got hit with a couple of storms earlier and are due uh, apparently for some more. And now there is snow and ice being forecasted for Portland and the Willamette Valley. Uh, the mountains have already gotten hit, and I think other parts of Oregon are also expecting some of the white stuff. So um, now uh, we're talking to you on Thursday, and this is going to air on Saturday and Sunday. So the pressure's on because by the time this airs, people will know if you're accurate or not. But what are things looking like right now? Are we going to get hit with snow or not? Well, as of uh, the time of this recording, which is Thursday, it certainly does look quite threatening. Uh, this is a, a very similar situation to uh, some of the more notable snowstorms we can get in areas like Portland. And I'm not saying we're going to equal or exceed those. Uh, we may, may not get quite as much snow as some of the worst ones that we've had, but the setup for it is very similar because we have uh, cold air as we speak. Cold air is coming out the Fraser River Canyon from British Columbia and spilling into Bellingham and uh, 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 Linton and areas up there in the North Puget Sound. In fact, Orcas Island was reporting a below-temperature freeze, uh, below-freezing temperature 
uh, when I just looked at it before the show. And it's also spilling down, more importantly, into OMAC and into the Columbia River Basin. OMAC has a very strong wind, and that's one of the typical things we see with a southward push of an Arctic front or Arctic boundary. And that's going to work its way southward tomorrow. And then uh, once that cold air reaches us, and it'll come through and into Portland through the Columbia River Gorge by creating a very strong difference in pressure from the east side of the Cascades to the west, the east winds will start howling here and be aggravated by the fact that we now have, combining with this, a low-pressure system off the coast, which is headed right towards Newport. And that's the sweet spot to really pull east wind out of the Columbia Gorge and fill the Willamette Valley with cold air. And it's one of those things where, as a storm approaches from the west, it typically brings warmer air aloft in with it. And that's, that's what creates the problem. You're pushing that warm, moist air in over a cold Arctic boundary, and where the air is deep enough in cold, like in Portland, where that air is just charging out of the gorge, this would all fall mostly as snow. But when you go down the Willamette Valley, when the east wind weakens and is mainly just a light northerly drift, the warmer Pacific air can shave off more layers of, of the cold that comes down the Willamette Valley and shallow it out to the point to where you'll first get liquid, uh, you'll first get snow to turn to liquid rain, melting in the warmer air above the ground, and then it falls into the cold layer and turns to sleet or freezing rain. Mm. And unfortunately for the Willamette Valley, uh, away from Portland, it's more than likely going to be an ice and sleet, sleet event. And of course, anytime you get freezing rain, uh, that's liquid water that freezes on contact with the ground because of the freezing uh, ambient air temperature, and that creates a slick sheet of ice. Most of us are pretty much aware what that what that is, and it makes it impossible to drive. It's very dangerous to walk on, and so it's going to be a pretty precarious 36 to 48 hours uh, down the Willamette Valley with this ice because there could be a half an inch or so of ice accumulating on things, and so that's not a good situation no. down there. And by the time you get to Portland, you're looking at winds out of the east gusting close to 50 miles per hour. And that cold air is charging out of the gorge with temperatures around 20 degrees. And so the wind chill is going to be close to zero. But once the precipitation starts up in Portland, it would be in the form of blowing and drifting snow. So you'd have near blizzard conditions even in Portland. And you're certainly going to get them in the Columbia Gorge. So the, uh, the, the least amount of precipitation would be in Portland on the far north end of this thing, but it was looking to me this morning like we may get uh, anywhere from, oh, four to six inches of snow in Portland, mm. and then uh, it would turn into the sleet and freezing rain as you go down the Willamette Valley. And once the storm passes inland, I would think that Sunday and Monday temperatures in the Willamette Valley should begin to moderate, and daytime highs anyway should be getting above freezing again to help melt some of the ice. But there'll be about 36 hours of pretty slick roads and icy conditions down in the Willamette Valley. So it's not going to be good for driving. It's very dangerous. And up here in Portland, you're fighting bitter cold, strong east winds, and, you know, uh, anywhere from four to six inches of snow. So they had predicted snow last week uh, here on the valley floor. Uh, they were thinking four to six inches, maybe even more. But then two days later, they said, no, not going to happen. How far out are predictions not so much forecast as they are just best guesses? Well, the, the, the thing that makes it difficult to forecast weather in this part of the country is the intermountain range and the fact that we have a confluent zone where this cold air could mix with warm. And so uh, the slightest change in trajectory of where these low-pressure systems move when they approach the area can make all the difference in the world as to what kind of precipitation you're going to get. If this storm that's coming in towards the uh, Newport area, that's where the center of lowest pressure looks like it would track, 
if it moved north of the mouth of the Columbia River to where it started pulling southerly wind in, because air blows towards the lower pressure, if, if it moved up that far north as it approached the coast, you would find marine air penetrating the Willamette Valley and keeping that part of the state free of any ice and snow. It would just be rain. And uh, the same thing for Portland. It would severely diminish the amount of cold east wind coming out of the gorge and push it back towards the gorge, more limiting the real bad frozen precipitation and snow conditions to the Columbia Gorge and east. But right now we don't see that. And it looks like it's heading in in a very favorable position to give us uh, a pretty good slug of some snow in Portland. And then, of course, the ice and, uh, you know, the freezing rain and sleet down the Willamette Valley. So mm. it's one of those uh, one of those types of storms. And uh, w- if we look at these on the weather maps and compare them to, to prior years, this is a setup that we typically see where we get our worst storms. And like, like I said, I'm not saying this will be the worst, but I can remember storms, uh, you know, practicing meteorology in this part of the country they go back into the 70s and 60s, and the setup is almost identical. Uh, some people may remember the uh, post-Christmas blizzard in Portland right after Christmas in 1968. The setup in that versus this is almost identical. The only difference is the low pressure in that scenario came right towards the mouth of the Columbia River, further enhancing the moisture over Portland. So yeah. we got more like a foot or two of snow with that, where this one will be further south and we won't get quite that much snow, but still, 46 inches is a pretty good uh, amount of snow. Well, especially with all that ice, but uh, of course, the other big uh, difference between then and now is now we've got global warming, so we're lucky to see any snow at all. So. Oh, yes, you got to talk <laughs> about that, you know. Yeah, you yeah. know what's really funny about that is, you know, these people have been telling us for uh, several decades now that snow is going to become a thing of the past. Yeah, and, and, yet, uh, and yet here it is. It just happens yeah, all the time. and, and here it oh. is, and it's coming back with with just as bitterly cold temperatures as uh, we have seen in past storms and past snow events, in spite of the fact that the El Nino has produced a big spike in the global temperature because it was up yeah. around like uh, 0.8 degrees Celsius above the 30-year mean. But that's typical for El Nino, and that's a natural phenomena, and it doesn't mean yes. at all yeah. with all the other factors that you're going to have a warm winter. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Yep. What's I... important to realize about this is it's natural and has nothing to do with these nutty climate change activists who constantly lie and spread a lot of bad information about the climate and get people all alarmed about that when there's no reason to be. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, uh, it is time for a break. A lot happening this last week, which means a lot to talk about with Chuck Weiss. We'll be talking about free speech, elections, green energies, and doors flying off airplanes. Stay with us. And welcome back. We're talking to Chuck Weiss today, one of our regular guests. He's a scientist, trained meteorologist, and fearsome debunker of global warming. But today we're talking about a wide range of topics in, in the news of late. Although we might get around to global warming, we'll just see. But one of the things I mentioned in the opener of last week's show was that there are two major battles that I think we'll be fighting in 2024. And one of those is free speech. And that includes not just saying what you want to say because it's your right, but also the right to not be censored by your own government. And Chuck, I know that you were disappointed in the Ninth Circuit's ruling against your previous election case. Can you tell our audience what happened there? Yes, uh, we basically filed a lawsuit against the state of Oregon and uh, all several counties that were involved that were based upon canvas research that we had done. That's canvassing research where we have our people go out and take a look at the at the issues around past elections, the recent recent past elections, including 2020. And we found all kinds of evidence that there was malfeasance and voter fraud. 
And we compiled all this to put into the lawsuit with the demand that they let us look at the uh, tabulator machines, which have been calculating vote results. And that lawsuit was initially filed in U.S. District Court in Portland, but uh, the judge in that rule uh, in, in that court uh, denied our request and dismissed the lawsuit. So we appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit wouldn't even give us so much as a hearing, which I mm-hmm. think is outrageous. But they just decided ahead of time, without uh, with without any notice, or they sent a, a brief notice to our attorney that uh, they weren't going to hear the case, they weren't going to let us uh, put anything on the record. And they were just going to simply decide it. And, so and, and by hear the case, you mean they weren't going to have any oral arguments? That's exactly right. No, no oral arguments allowed. They weren't going to hear it. And uh, then carte blanche, they, they, they just uh, issued a ruling saying, nope, we agree with the uh, lower court. There's no uh, case to be made here. And, of course, they, they used the excuse of standing rather than the evidence we had to present, which I think is also outrageous. It's ridiculous. This has become the new normal now in these courts to keep us and keep citizens from getting their voices heard and allowing evidence of and proof of voter fraud to go on the record. So and, it got thrown you, out that way. Did, did you get any sense from uh, Stephen Jonkis, your attorney there, uh, because the, the Ninth had agreed to take the case, but then they just refused to even hear the oral arguments. It, did you get a sense from Stephen as to whether or not that's normal? Uh, he didn't really say whether it's normal, but I mean, just look at look at it on the face of it. I mean, what court would say, yes, we'll take this and we'll agree to hear it, and then suddenly turn around and slap you in the face and say, you know what, we changed our mind, and they first agreed to have oral arguments. They set a date for it and a time, and it was on the court docket for about two or three weeks, and then all of a sudden, they just pulled the plug on it without giving us a reason why they did that and said, we're going to issue a decision soon, but there's not going to be any oral arguments. Hmm. Next thing we know, it's thrown out of court under the same premise that the original court filing in the U.S. District Court in Portland had said, which was you don't have standing. And of course we have standing. When you can prove that there are voters that were disenfranchised by the fraud that we actually discovered that was going on, you have a case to be made. And it's really concerning to me that they use these ridiculous rulings, and I think it is ridiculous to say you don't have standing. Uh, I don't care what they claim a legal argument to that is. On the face of it, it makes absolutely no sense. They should be allowing this information to go on the record. They should allow there to be trials so the citizens can get a, a pathway to a decision by a court which can contradict what the ruling class wants to have imposed upon the citizens, which is basically to keep us from being able to look at all the things they're doing in the election process that we're plenty suspicious of, and we simply want to see corrected. Whatever is wrong, we want it corrected. And if there's n- and our whole case from the beginning has been, you know, if there's nothing wrong with the tabulator machines and all the other things that you say in Oregon are going in such a very nice uh, way, and there's just no problems with it, it's the best system around, we couldn't do any better with it, then let us kick the tires and look under the sure, hood. Sure. That's all we've ever said in these lawsuits. And if we find by that that, the, that their, their position was correct and there really aren't any problems, then fine, we can walk away from this and no harm done. But what is the point, what does this look like to the public, and what does it look like to a reasonably-minded person when the courts are acting this way and the people that are on the other side that work in our own government are fighting us tooth and nail and, and constantly saying, 
and telling the other courts, don't let this thing be heard. We, we don't want any of this to be well, heard. It's a security thing. What they're doing is they're, just show, they're covering everything up, and they're making it look like there's plenty wrong, and they just don't want us to see it. Well, and, and that's, that's, the, that's the problem. And, and Yes, that is the problem, because you would think that if you want people to trust the elections, you would want to have people come in, raise these questions, and then you can show them how wrong they all, they all are. But the fact that you guys aren't even getting a chance to talk about it, that's pretty reprehensible, and I would certainly expect a better of our nine circuit um so well i i I expect better of of our government you know these people that work in the election offices i'm sure there's a lot of very nice people that work there that are just trying to do their job and be honest but somebody somewhere up the ranks in the management of this thing are simply not doing that and it makes anybody very suspicious when they refuse to let us look at the things that we know we need to look at to determine whether or not these machines are running properly and there isn't a problem right. with tabulators and all the other things. Right. And it's not just that, Mark. Then they made all these pre- these precarious laws that came right out of the Secretary of State's office to further allow and invite voter fraud in. The, the new rules they made post-2020 we're ridiculous, and that's what we're having to live under now yes. with this vote by mail. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll talk some more about election fraud in a later segment. But, you know, voting uh, for whom you want is that, you know, actually, um, this is going to take a bit to answer. Let's go ahead and take a break a little bit early. Come back, we'll be talking more with Chuck Weiss. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Fannie Willis and a whole bunch more. Stay with us. We have Chuck Weiss on today. Chuck is an academically trained scientist, a meteorologist, a fearsome debunker of global warming, and he's becoming more of a political activist, as we all should be. Uh, we're covering a lot of bases today with him. And uh, Chuck, we got kind of interrupted there in that last segment where we we're talking about elections and whatnot and free speech and voting for whom you want is as every bit as much a bit of uh, free speech as uh, as talking about elections, including talking about election fraud or the potential for it. But in your wildest imaginings, from even just a few years ago, did you ever imagine a time when the president of the United States and his activists would be trying a multi-pronged attack to remove their political opponent from the ballot? And if that doesn't work, the other prong is to try to jail him because he was speaking about the fraud that got the current president elected. I, I, I never would have seen that coming. I wouldn't have thought that these people would go that far myself. I mean, I know they've done a lot of dirty tricks, but I never thought that they would get to the point to where they would actually file all these bogus criminal charges against this guy. And I really feel sorry for Donald Trump. I mean, these people are throwing everything at him to try to keep him off the ballot, uh, and then also to try to put him in a jail. Never thought I would actually see it, but now that it's out there, it's more visible than ever. And if there's a silver lining to any of it, it just might be that the public, even Democrats that typically wouldn't vote for President Trump, are getting so sick of people in their own party pulling dirty tricks like this that are so obviously apparent yeah. that they might have turned on their own party. And this is why President Trump, in spite of what's happened, is so popular in the polls and he's leading by far over any other candidates. I think this fairness issue has a lot to do with that. And uh, hopefully the public is just saying, being fair-minded, which anybody should be when they're looking at something like this. They see what's going on, and they should just say it's inexcusable, it's unjustifiable, and these people are so corrupt that are in our government and in power, they have got to go, and so we're going to vote for Donald Trump, even though we don't yes. like some of the things that we w- w- that we uh, would cause us maybe not to vote for him. Yeah. I think and, there's and, that you know, sentiment I, I think, out there. I, and I agree. I, I think we're starting to see more of that. I think I might have seen this coming 
but certainly not nearly so fast and, and, and so quickly. You know, in the in the span of just one election, all of a sudden we've we've got this this craziness coming from the Democrats. I mean, nothing says democracy like you can only vote for the people we say you can vote for. Uh, but so uh, one of the prosecutors going against Trump there is Fannie Willis. She's a corrupt prosecutor going after Trump for doing what every politician has done since the dawn of democracy, wanting election officials to be sure that they are accurate, counted all the votes that should have been counted and not count votes that should not have been counted, illegally cast, no residency and, and so on. But there's been some news on her this last week. She allegedly has a romantic relationship with a prosecutor that she hired, paid him over $600,000 despite him never being a prosecutor before. It looks like this boyfriend of hers may have been actually coordinating with the Biden White House having visited there in the, I mean, he shows up in the White House uh, visitor logs after she hired him. And in fact, he looks like he was charging Fannie Willis's office for those visits. So that looks like uh, corruption and collusion right there. Uh, Using the money that she paid him, the two of them went on lavish vacations and other spending sprees. And now it turns out that he's married and the wife has subpoenaed Fannie Willis to appear in divorce court. Whoops. (laughs) I mean, this is just insane. Well, I can't think of it happening to a more deserving person. Really, really. I mean, she is corrupt and rotten to the core. If this is how this woman wants to live and carry, a, uh, carry on with her personal life, it says volumes. It speaks volumes about how, uh, what sort of a prosecutor you might have there who lives a personal life the way she does in total dishonesty and disgrace. So it's, just, it's typical of, of what might happen when you see these really corrupt people that obtain power and then misuse it like she's doing with Donald Trump, and then all of a sudden her, the personal side to her life comes out. Not surprising to me at all. This woman should be disbarred if all of this is true, yes. and, she might, and she should even have to face a criminal, a criminal prosecution herself for such an uh, abrasive abuse of power. I mean, uh, how far can, can this stuff go before there's got to be pushback this way and justice brought so that the lesson learned is we don't ever do this again if you know what's good for you because yes. you'll end up in prison for 10 years yeah. for trying it. Yes. And uh, that's the way that the, the, the message is sent and should be sent. The question is, with all the corruption that's gone on in this Biden administration that goes into his own DOJ, whether things like that would actually happen with, with, uh, with somebody like her. And, of course, she, this is a state thing, not federal. But who knows what the connections are there and the influence peddling that goes on back and forth? Who well, knows? And, and, and that is always one of the hardest things ever is to hold government officials accountable. Uh, we've been talking about that since since day one here. Um, so under the category of this will get Chuck riled up, and we've got a lot of those, uh, election fraud. I don't know if you have seen it or not, but Trump put out a summary of election fraud in the swing states during the 2020 presidential election. The introduction leads off with, quote, it has often been repeated. There is no evidence of fraud in the 2020 election. In actuality, there is no evidence Joe Biden won. And he's right. That's that's the lie, that there was no evidence of voter fraud. And let me just read some of the highlights of evidence just from Georgia. Fulton County, Georgia, the most populous county in the state, has no digital record of all in-person votes cast in its original result. Not a single ballot purportedly cast during early in-person voting was witnessed to and signed off by poll managers, as required by Georgia election rules. Seals were broken and memory cards removed from tabulators for the results of these 315,000 early votes. The ballot images of those votes, along with the rest of in-person ballots cast on Election Day, were destroyed. 90%, that's 90, 90% of the approximately 148,000 absentee ballots cast in Fulton County 
cannot be authenticated. 376,000 and change ballot images are missing from the first machine count, which includes all in-person votes in Fulton County. And 104,994 ballot image files of these mail-in ballots from the original count contained identical modified timestamps suggesting electronic manipulation. And there is a lot more, but that is just one county. And keep in mind, the margin of so-called victory in Georgia was about 11,000 votes. So would you care to weigh in on that? Well, this is this is part of the problem that that uh, that alludes to us having looked into our own problems in Oregon and doing what we've done in our state. But the important thing to get out of all of this that they're finding now, and there certainly would have been enough at the at the right after the 2020 election, because Donald Trump had been talking to officials in in Georgia, the Secretary of State there in particular, and telling him that you know Brad Raffensperger that you know he's He's supposed to have been uh, looking into some of this stuff at the request of Donald Trump, and he was the guy who said, no, there's nothing wrong. We're at, at, but actually, first he admitted, if my memory serves me right, Mark, I think Brad Raffensperger actually admitted to Donald Trump right after the election that, that he won Georgia. Yes. And then a, a, few, a few days later, suddenly he does an about-face and goes, no, that's not what we're seeing now, and we have no reason to ever question our election results. And then the vicious attacks that went back on him and all the claims that were made for even trying to pry into this would just go beyond the pale. And now that we're seeing all this other stuff that, that's come out about it, that, that, that they're finding now, this tells you, obviously, what's been going on. You have a completely corrupt government in the state of Georgia, and how many other states yes. is it just as bad? Yeah, and, and, and like I said, are, have been covered up. Like, like uh, I said, that's just uh, scratching the surface there with the voter fraud and, and of just one county there in Georgia. While we often hear that there's no evidence of election fraud, I'm beginning to wonder if there's any evidence of election integrity. So, all right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. That Boeing 737 whose emergency door was blown off in mid-flight, we'll get a pilot's perspective on that next. And welcome back. We're talking with Chuck Weiss, a regular guest on the Osprey Radio Show, because he is a fan favorite. Chuck is a former meteorologist, a fierce debunker, not just of global warming, but of all junk science and leftist ideology. And he is also a former commercial pilot. And uh, one of the news items recently was that a Boeing 737's emergency door blew off uh, mid-flight, sucking out phones. But fortunately, no one was pulled out and no one was injured. And by the grace of God, the two people whose seats happened to be next to that door just didn't make the flight. So thank God for that. In terms of um, this door suddenly flying off, can, can you comment on that? Well, it's it's uh, not something that should have ever happened. I mean, the last place you would look when uh, when somebody like an airline company like Alaska buys these jets from Boeing, they decide ahead of time what the configuration of the jet aircraft will be, you know, how many seats they want, and based upon that, then Boeing has to design uh, how everything plays out and where the emergency exit rows will be and where the emergency exits themselves will be. And in the longer version of the 9 Max, they would have put an emergency exit there. But because Alaska wanted the aircraft configured in a smaller version for their purposes, they they then just to say, okay, I, I, the fuselage design is done, and if you don't want that many extra seats on this, then what we're going to do is we'll just put a plug door where this otherwise emergency exit door or window would have been, so that no, it, it and then they just cosmetically, uh, you know, make it look like it's just another window. They dress it all up, but they have to uh, put the door plug in and make sure that by design it is secure to where it can withstand the pressure differential 
that occurs from the inside of the cabin to the out at all the uh, at all the operating altitudes they'll be at. And when they go from sea level to 39,000 feet or so, or 40,000, whatever the service ceiling or altitude they select for that aircraft, there's a difference in pressure from the outside to end of nine, you know, it can't go over a, a, a nine pounds per square inch. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you add up the number of square inches on a, an emergency exit door, it's thousands of pounds. Hmm. But they have to secure that, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. They secure it in a way to where it's going to hold cabin pressure and uh, if all the other functions of the cabin pressure controller and the valves operate correctly, everybody there is just fine. But if the design of the door is is flawed in some way, which it looks like from the information from the NTSB and what's coming out from the FAA, it's beginning to look like there was a, a flaw in the design or the materials that they used to, to put that door in place, then it obviously the pressure put on the door caused it to fail and do what it did where it popped out and uh, just fell in flight from 16,000 feet. And that was a long way away from where the maximum pressure differential from outside to in would occur at 16,000 feet. The, uh, the the cabin altitude would have only been about 1,200 feet at, at from 16,000. Eventually, it climbs up to 8 when that difference in pressure starts increasing uh, from the outside to the in. But in all circumstances, it's supposed to be able to easily hold that pressure. And in this case... It didn't hold it even at 16,000 feet. Hmm. And uh, the NTSB has is, is, you know, been telling um, the, the public that this aircraft, the particular aircraft that this happened with, also had the same, it had, a, had problems with pressurization earlier. There had been write-ups about right, it from right. the pilots. And uh, the uh, mechanics went over it and looked at all the pressurization systems and found nothing wrong. And I believe part of the reason why that happened is because the last place you would think of to look is a door that was put into place with the design of the aircraft that's never going to have any function at all. Once it's put into place, it's done, and you would never look at it again until you undergo some of these fuselage inspections, which don't occur till uh, a later life in the aircraft itself. So when they looked at the pressurization system itself and they were getting these um, auto-pressurization warning lights, the mechanics aren't going to be looking at the door. They look at the system itself, and they couldn't find anything wrong. So mm. they sign it off, and it goes back into service. But because they had repeated incidences of it, they decided we're not going to put this out over the ocean or use it for flights, let's say, from Seattle or Portland to Honolulu or over the Pacific Ocean, because if there was a rapid depressurization in flight over the mid part of the ocean, your options then are limited because you've got to descend rapidly to 10,000 feet. Your fuel burn goes way up at lower altitude. And if you're not real careful the way you plan those, you may not have enough fuel to get to your alternate point. Um, they have such a thing that they call ETOPS operations, which is, means extended twin operating uh, jet aircraft, where they plan for this. And the idea is if you do get one of these rapid depressurizations, you select an alternate at, at points along your, your route of flight that would allow you to descend rapidly to 10,000 feet and then make it to this alternate that you uh, put in your flight plan. And you have to plan those ahead of time based on wind and passenger load, that sort of thing. It's all figured in the flight plan. But Alaska was being very cautious about that, and I'm glad that they were. That was a good decision in saying we're not going to allow an ETOPS operation in this jet aircraft over the ocean. We're going to restrict it to land flights. And on this particular day, the airplane was headed to Ontario, California, and it had just left Portland and reached that 16,000 altitude when the door blew right, out. Right. So um, uh, we've only got about a minute here with you. Th this would have been much worse if it had happened at 30,000 feet, I assume. And But what's the reality of decompression in this real-life situation 
versus what you see in the movies where it just seems to last and last and every, everything's getting sucked out. Well, at 30,000 feet, it would have been a lot more dramatic because, like I said, that 9 PSI differential is there then or close to that, where it's a lot less at 16,000 feet. But one of the things has, that hasn't been talked about, which, uh, which also could have happened, and thank God it didn't, because uh, the aircraft was climbing, so the door, when it separated, probably fell just underneath the aircraft when the tail section went by it. But had the airplane been descending, or this happened in level flight, that door, when it came loose, could have struck the tail section of the wow. aircraft, and now you'd have controllability problems, and it could have been a disaster where they lose control of the aircraft. Jeepers. And so it's, it's very fortunate that it happened in that retrospect when it did, if it had to happen at all. So that didn't cause any problems there, and they were able to get back to the airport and land. But the door also could have killed somebody on the ground. If it would have hit a car or a person, they'd be dead. That door weighs 64 pounds, and falling from 16,000 feet, it had more than enough speed to cause a fatal blow to somebody that might have been subjected to it on the ground had it done that. So a lot of fortunate things happened where there were no fatalities, but there certainly could have been. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they, they they have to follow through now and make sure that this design flaw is fixed, and right. those that were responsible for that have to be held accountable. Right. And, and, and obviously and, something very wrong. And in fact, I, I did like seeing that the Boeing CEO, David Calhoun, has taken responsibility for this. He's not running from it or blaming others or denying the problem. They're accepting responsibility, and they're going to fix it. That's how you build trust, not like what we see with our elections division that wants to censor people talking about elections or sue them when they want to see databases. That's not how you build trust. All right, lots more with Chuck Weiss. Everyone stay with us. We're talking with today with Chuck Weiss. He is a fan favorite of ours and also a good friend as well. And uh, Chuck is a former meteorologist, a debunker of global warming and leftist ideology. Right is right, and Chuck is definitely on the right. We did actually have some good wins, as I mentioned in last week's show there in 2023. And one of those was a ruling here in Oregon that basically threw out the governor's climate change scheme, uh, in particular her, her uh, carbon credit scheme. And I was rather shocked to see that. But now we've got another one here in Oregon. Uh, uh, this one raises concerns about the impartiality or lack of it of judges when it comes to climate lawsuits. And this is from Just the News. Quote, a federal judge in Oregon denied a request from the U.S. Department of Justice to dismiss a climate change-based lawsuit. This is one of dozens of cases brought against oil or, as the marketing term goes, fossil fuels. And the judge said that climate change poses such a dire risk to mankind and the court is duty-bound to provide redress for the irreparable harm government fossil fuel promotion has caused. Uh, the ruling contains a number of statements, apparently, that express sympathy with the view that climate change is posing a dire threat to the human race. And, you know, these lawsuits are designed to force left-wing ideology on people and circumvent things like, oh, I don't know, legislatures. But here's the thing. According to that article, a network of climate activists who oppose oil and natural gas and support so-called green energy, it's not green, uh, may be training judges presiding over these cases. And they mentioned this, the Climate Judiciary Project, according to Fox News, has crafted 13 curriculum modules and hosted 42 events, training more than 1,700 judges in the art of climate change, apparently. Why are we not doing the same thing to educate judges about the fallacies of global warming? Well, I think on the face of it, Mark, that whole program is outrageous. I mean, it's simply outrageous. I mean, these people have absolutely no business 
pulling a judge that's supposed to be impartial after hearing testimony from either sides of an argument, pulling that judge aside and filling his or her head full of nonsense without any rebuttal from the other side. It's, it's like they're, they're brainwashing and conditioning this judge to reject yeah, any other propaganda. arguments other than the ones that come from these left-wing activists. I mean, this ought to be illegal. It, it ought to be stopped immediately. I, I, I just can't think of a, of a more egregious way of, of absolutely trying to skew the, uh, the uh, event to the side of these leftists that are doing this sort of thing with climate. And the arguments about this not only are here in the courts now, which is, which is the most outrageous of all, but you know, as you know, Mark, it's been going on in public education for a long time. These teachers are brainwashing our youth. The youth are scared to death of climate change you see it all the time in, in places like Portland where the public schools have these climate strikes where they, they cut their classes and by sanction of the teachers, they're allowed to go out and march in the streets. They mark, uh, march across the Hawthorne Bridge here in Portland. Then they go to OMSI and get treated for, by a, a, a lunch hosted by OMSI for going out on these climate strikes. Right, yeah. And the kids don't know any better. They're only told what these educators tell them, and the educators are telling them, you're going to die if we don't cut fossil fuel use. And they fill their head full of nonsense. Well, now they're doing it at the judicial level, and I think that's outrageous. That should be totally illegal and not allowed. And I don't know how these judges or anybody in the legal system can allow this and think there's anything good about it if they're not going to uh, invite the other side to counter everything that these people are being told by these left-wing activists who aren't practicing science, by the way. They're practicing political science. Because if they practice science, we can refute almost every single thing that they bring up that they're going to say is causing the climate to change by use of fossil fuels, which is just a big lie. There's no proof of it. And they keep saying that there is, but uh, the brainwashing is just relentless. And now in the courts, you know, you, you just got to throw your hands up and go, what is the country turning into with all of this? Well, and you... how are these people allowed to talk to these judges and have conferences with them and train them, just like Al Gore was doing to his disciples about all the nonsense he was spewing about the climate for years and brainwashing yes. these little little camps of people that go around and give these educational, so-called educational talks to the public. Well, this, it's just unbelievable. And and you're right, is uh, to name them disciples because it's more cult than science. This will probably also just steam you. Um, according to, uh, and, and apparently the organization behind this uh, Climate Judiciary Project is the Washington, D.C.-based Environmental Law Institute, and one of the judges that was doing these trainings apparently is from Oregon, but according to the ELI website, the goal of the project is to, quote, provide neutral, objective information on climate science that's relevant to current and future litigation. And right there, baloney. I mean, if you can't call this neutral, objective information if you believe in global warming, you're already converted, and so you can't be neutral. That's absolutely right. That's just laughable on the face of it. They're not providing neutral information. They're providing the, the, the bad information that we know is coming from these places like NOAA, who have skewed climate data to show things that don't, that don't exist and that aren't calculated correctly, to the failed climate models. All of this stuff, the, the whole gamut of it is there. It's been collected, and we have proof that it's been done. And these judges need to be looking at that. But instead, the activists now that are bending the ear of these judges are showing them all this falsified data and bad claims made about climate models and saying 
They're all factual, and it is a dire emergency. We've got to do something with it, and you judges got to be willing to listen to everything that we bring into the courts in the way of lawsuits that want to hamstring the public and ostracize their use of fossil fuels. It's just, it's outrageous. And, it, and the, the hell of it is, it's not going to make any difference to the climate. It doesn't matter what these people do in the way of legislative actions and all the crazy things they're trying to do now. It will not change the direction and the magnitude in which mm -hmm. atmospheric CO2 is increasing, and it's going to have absolutely no effect on the climate. It's a complete fraud, and it's nothing more than a tool by these leftists to control and ostracize the behavior of our society, yep. uh, of yep. us people. It's taking yep. away your freedoms and legislating them away under the, fa under the false claim that if we don't do it, you're going to die because of climate change. <laughs> That's right. All right, let's take our break. We'll wrap things up with Chuck Weiss after this. We've been talking about the hot topics of the week. You might have seen this one, but if you haven't, stick around for one of the dumbest things the globalists have decided to attack now. And we're back. We're in the final segment now with Chuck Weiss. We've been talking about a range of subjects, but we can't help but talk a little bit more about climate change. And uh, Chuck, under the guise of uh, climate change, we are seeing no end of stupidity, especially in Europe. And among the dumber things that I've seen in recent memory, and uh, I've seen a lot lately, farmers in Germany and the Netherlands have both come under attack. And uh, the Netherlands was seizing their land. And um, in fact, they, uh, the, the existing powers that be lost the election over it. But now Germany is ending a tax credit for agricultural diesel and the farmers are absolutely revolting and parking their tractors and equipment on highways and, and blocking bridges and all sorts of things. I mean, of all of the possibly dumb, dumb things that globalists and global warmers do, it just seems attacking the people who grow the food that you eat has to be about the dumbest uh, thing I've ever seen. Well, the whole methane thing uh, started a lot of this. And uh, methane is a harmless uh, greenhouse gas. There's not enough of it and not enough absorbing energy at the wavelengths that operates at to cause any harm to the climate. But of course, the lies just come out and perpetuate this. And that's where a lot of the regulations now that they want to put on farmers about the use of uh, fertilizers and things like that are causing great harm to their ability to do their jobs. And, but I'm in complete support of the farmers. They need to do this. They need to push back on it. Because if they don't, and these people that are nutso over there do this to them, it's not going to stop there. Wherever, whatever starts in, in Europe usually ends up in the United States, and they'll be starting the same sort of nonsense with the farmers here. Uh, these people are absolutely incompetent. Some of them, I think, uh, are willfully incompetent, or not willfully incompetent, but willfully deceiving, deceiving the public uh, to uh, enforce these horrendous regulations on us. And unless it's stopped, it's going to cause great harm to the economy. I mean, these people are trying to control the amount of food that we eat, uh, w when we can eat it. Uh, we already learned about uh, what, they've been, uh, what they did with smart thermostats in the state of Colorado. If the listener hadn't heard that story, uh, for those people that were involved in the green energy projects in the state of Colorado, the, uh, uh, the power companies were pushing these uh, smart thermostats because they claim if you have one of those, it saves energy automatically. It does all these wonderful things for you. And what they didn't tell the citizens of Colorado that weren't, were, were, weren't smart enough to see through the, uh, the fraud was that, hey, if you put one of these smart thermostats in, we can now control mm -hmm. uh, the thermostat setting in your house. And that's exactly what they did when they had a heat wave in the summer. 
uh, a year or two ago. I think it was last year. It might have yeah, been last the year. year no, it was last year, I think. Uh, it, when they had a heat wave in Colorado, the temperatures were uh, approaching 100 degrees. The uh, green energy uh, you know, stuff that was going on in Colorado was creating power shortages or threats mm-hmm. of power shortages because it wasn't able to deliver load demand. And anybody that knows something about electricity would have been able to tell these people that a long time ago, but they don't listen. They don't care. It's about control to them. And so when they, they create the, uh, our, the power shortages, that's how these people work. They create the problem, and then the solution is for you to give up your freedom and your ability to control your own yes. life. Yep, so they started, yep. they, 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 they started turning down the thermostats uh, or, or turning up the thermostat uh, of households that were in this heat wave. So they, they brought it up to 78 degrees, which is, you know, that's unbearably uncomfortable. I mean, that's really... Uh, very uncomfortable for somebody to be in and, when it's that much hotter outside. And when you say they were turning them up, you mean the power company was turning them up, just to be clear. Exactly. They, were, they, they took control of the thermostats, and they forcibly turned the, uh, the thermostat up to 78, and they locked it to where the person who had the smart thermostat couldn't control it. And then they told people, well, that's, that's what a smart thermostat does. This is what we have to do to save the environment and all yeah, this other nonsense. Baloney. baloney. And, I, you and, know, and, I, and, I remember when they were trying to introduce uh, those types of things here in Oregon with both the smart meters and then the smart thermostats. And a lot of people like us were warning people, no, this is going to give the power company control over, over your house. You're not going to be the one being able to set it. And sure enough, as you point out, it happened there in Colorado. And of course, that's part of the big push, too, I think, with uh, electric vehicles is because the government can't just simply shut off a gas powered vehicle that's out there driving around all free and willy nilly and and enjoying liberty and freedom. But they can do that with an electric vehicle. And uh, so now I uh, I don't know if it's part of that or uh, maybe it's just some other reason. But all of a sudden, the electric vehicle popularity has absolutely plummeted here in the U.S. Ford and GMC dealers who are being forced to sell these have revolted and said they won't do it anymore because they're losing so much money on them. Some even took a corporate buyout rather than be forced to sell them. And even in the U.K., uh, EVs are suddenly unpopular. I mean, it just shows that you can't force bad ideas on people, no matter the tax credits, where it doesn't eventually run into reality. Well, yes, Mark, and and the... uh that's all of that's true, but another thing that people need to be aware of that are thinking about buying an electric vehicle is that uh, the green energy push here in Oregon, where they wanted uh, to destroy all the uh, hydroelectric dams, take them out, and replace them with solar and wind, and no other backups. These these activists are so nutty; they're they're even opposed to the much safer nuclear energy, which you could generate now. They won't listen to it. They just want nothing but uh, the so-called green wind and solar. That's supposed to provide all the power that we're able to use here in Oregon. And as you increase the population of the electric vehicles, the number of yeah, charging stations yeah, is going to go up. And so you're going to create low demand shortages, just like uh, was happening in Colorado with yeah, these electric vehicles. Absolutely. And then yep. what they, will, they, they have what just completely they, they have completely uh, overloaded the system with demand, and uh, they are just making it even harder to meet that demand by pulling out those dams. All right, uh, Chuck, unfortunately, we're up against the clock. I want to thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Yes, Mark, glad to to be on. We'll talk again. If you've heard Chuck before, you know he is a passionate defender of medical freedom, especially getting access to things like ivermectin, a drug that has been fully approved by the FDA until they needed to block access to it so people would be forced to take the vaccines. Well, once again, ivermectin is making the news, and I'll put some links for you to look through. They just keep finding more uses for this. But Big Pharma and the deep state, for some reason, just don't want people to have access to effective things wonder why that is. Take a look at that and other things that we just didn't get to due to time constraints. 
but maybe you'd like to explore them further. Find those at iSpyRadio.com show 14-02 and feel free to share those because, as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.